I'm Marcel from the Picabo Radio and today's guest is Matthew McGain from sketchvideos.com.au. Matthew was one of the first friends I made in Australia and um, I follow his journey for quite a while. After Matthew gives us a bit of background of where he came from, how he has started sketchnoting in Japan for school kids, uh, we talk about sketchnote videos. A lot of my students ask, how can I create my own sketchnote video? And Matthew again opens his big drawer of tricks and tips and we have a look into detail of how you can start your own video or what it takes to produce your own uh, professional sketchnote video. We talk about your first setup you could start with as well as what is essential for your recording. What does the pre-production work look like and what does the post-production look like? We look into the detail of how digital tools can help you to get a good outcome much faster than shooting real hand-drawn video with apps on the iPad and so on. I want to welcome you to the Picabo Radio of 2017. May all the projects you have, private or in your business, flourish. And with that, I hand over the microphone to Matthew McGain from sketchvideos.com.au. Thank you very much for joining me, Matthew. That's yep. great to have you on the show. And maybe we start with a bit of, of background of how do you got into sketchnoting? Sure. Well... Or maybe we start even further back and say, who are you anyway? Okay. So uh, I have an engineering degree. Mm -hmm. Actually, I studied information technology at uni and worked as a software developer for a few years. I could always write code, but... It, It didn't really come naturally to me. I had to work hard at it. And I'd always drawn as a kid. So, I so think, what languages were that? Um, I was writing big, boring financial software in Java, um, C, Power Builder, Forte, some, some old languages. Nice. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I guess there was this kind of creative itch that needed to be scratched. And I'd ignored it for years and I eventually came back to it. And I ran away from... The consulting world, it was this kind of toxic boys club that wasn't a good cultural fit for me anyway. Yeah. To run away to Asia to teach English, to think about what I was going to do with my career. And it was actually while I was teaching in um, junior high schools in Tokyo that I rediscovered sketching. So I was making a ton of um, learning activities and teaching aids and um, classroom worksheets that were all hand-drawn because it was just easier for me at the time to, to sketch these ideas down. So I'd make board games, I'd make conversation sheets, and the teachers that I worked with in Japan, they loved it. They Actually, one of them was trying to encourage me to make a book out of these oh, nice. um, yes. teaching resources because yes. there was nothing like it. And I never did get around to doing that, but I suppose that was the first that I remember in my professional career where the sketching... I remembered how much I enjoyed it. I, I realized how valuable it was. And that was, I guess, the start of me rediscovering um, job satisfaction through sketching and being creative, I think. So let me let me try to summarize what I get that right. Like you you basically created like uh, um, like sheets to, that, the, that the kids could fill in. You created a game for the kids to um, 
learn something while they while they draw or yeah, so, fill something in or what is well, it? Well, so the big problem with um, teaching English in Japan is that it's generally done in Japanese. Uh-huh. So the teacher stands at the front of the class and explains in Japanese what's a noun, what's a verb, what's an adjective, what's a predicate, what's different tenses, and they kind of dissect it all from an academic sense and never get any practice speaking at all. It's ridiculous. Yeah. So the Japanese kids have grown up with this latent vocabulary that they know how to read and they can't even have a basic conversation. And so that's why there's such demand for native speakers to teach English in Japan because it's a recognition of the fact that um, getting that conversational confidence is really what's missing in the Japanese education system. It sounds very much like my Latin education. In Germany, you pick Latin or France in high school you never speak it because all the people are dead who speak that. <laughs> yeah, and so it's probably um, it's probably quite similar. You probably yeah, just from a logically could read Latin and make yeah. some sense of it. But if someone came to speak to you in Latin, yeah, <laughs> you're going to struggle, right? Absolutely, it would just yeah. freeze. So these worksheets were, um, you know, because they weren't coming from the boring curriculum text. Because I was factoring in, like, the more I lived there, the more I learned about the culture and what was popular and what the kids liked, and I'd use. Um, you know, pop stars and movie stars from Japanese culture uh-huh. in the worksheets so that they could resonate and identify with them and um, and also taught them a bit about Australia as well. That was my opportunity to have um, fill in the blanks where they'd, they'd have the conversation sheet and they'd see some of the words and that would be a trigger for them to try and think what is the, the English word for that or if I'd um, demonstrate with the other teacher at the front of the class and have the kind of repeat after me conversation, they'd have the, the sketches as a prompt. And I think because manga is so popular in Japan, yeah. Yeah. Um, the kids, you know, really uh, latched onto the sketches and the drawings because they all draw themselves. And so it was a nice way to find common ground and, and win trust and win rapport. So you draw with them manga and like to, for teaching. What, what what age range was it? Uh, this I, I taught from right from primary school, so age five up to junior high, so I guess about age ten. Nice. Yeah, yeah, it was fun. How long have you been staying there? I was in there, I was in Japan for three years. The plan mm-hmm. was to go over for one year, um, but I was having so much fun, and it was quite expensive to get set up. And once I was earning reasonable money, it, fit, it felt like a a good idea to stick around and capitalize on that. Yeah, absolutely. Until um, until it was time to come back. And then, yeah. then you, like after consulting, after teaching English in Japan, directly came back to Melbourne? Or um, yeah, you, so I... I guess you, you grew up in Melbourne or... No, I'm, Adelaide, right? That's right. I'm from yeah. Adelaide originally. Yeah. I moved to Melbourne over 20 years yeah. ago now, um, straight out of university. Mm-hmm. Um, so Melbourne is very much my home these days. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, when I came back to Melbourne, I was a bit worried that I wouldn't be able to get a job because I'd ignored my um, kind of technical skills and thought that I'll, everything would have moved past. And so I, um, while I was over in Japan, I was kind of tinkering with this new thing that was starting to get some momentum called blogs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was the first time that, um, that the word blog became common in the vernacular and mm-hmm. I was experimenting with web design. And I think... Really what I did is I moved from writing code to pushing pixels to illustration. That was kind of my journey to having a creative job. Um, Actually, I went back to study graphic design when I came back to Melbourne so that I Mm -hmm. knew how to use the Adobe suite better and and understood design 
principles like color and typography and layout stuff. And I think like, um, I heard it so often, like it, it's also I'm just, just to get started again in a city, right? Like if I studying something, you get like, you just get started again and being three years away, it needs a bit of traction then. Again. Yeah. And I think, um, it was really, I mean, for me, I, I, I it began, I think something had been started and I knew what I wanted to do and I knew where the skill gaps were. So I was motivated to, to fill in those gaps and, and round out my understanding of graphics technology and, and being able to, because I was very comfortable drawing on paper with pen, but I wasn't comfortable with translating that into something digital. And that was really where I wanted to, um, to fill that gap. So I you know, did that course and it was very useful. So how have you used then your Adobe skills after you studied? Well, so I, um, so I then went and um, took on more design roles. So I was working at a company where I began in a kind of junior design role and gradually moved up to eventually leading the team and having a creative director role at that company. So I'll explain my story and it'll make some sense. Um, there's this term called UX that you'd be familiar with, mm -hmm. user experience, yeah. user experience design. And that was kind of getting traction at this job that I had as a concept, but I didn't really understand what it was or what it meant. But what I did know was that the design process we were following sucked. We were yeah. having arguments about which layout was better. We were having real issues with stakeholder management because the owner and the general manager would fight about what's the best design. About then, the right color. Exactly the right color. <laughs> and, then, and then we'd launch it and then the users would hate it and they'd complain and there'd be a big backlash. It was, yeah. it was terrible. And so this thing called user experience design I'd heard of and wanted to learn more about. And um, I kind of sought out a mentor who explained to me how they went about things and there were other people that I leaned on and learned from. And eventually um, applying those user-centered design principles at that organization really transformed how we did design and made a huge difference. So it brought all the structure to it and some like well, logical just, cause and effect. It, like seems like, it seems like yeah. common sense, right? Yeah. Involving users at every yeah. stage of the life cycle and, yeah. and learning earlier rather than later. You know, all the stuff that, that it seems common sense, but at the time we weren't doing it and we were suffering. Nice. So, um, so I yeah, eventually um, felt confident enough to go out freelance as a user experience designer, so as a consultant. So yeah. I was helping corporations and startups with their web and mobile apps mostly. It was mostly digital. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, like I said, it was really transformational for how we did design and I wanted to share that with other people. And so I started this website with a friend of mine called UX Mastery. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And to launch that website, I thought we'd make a sketch video. Yeah. That was the first sketch video that we made. The yeah. RSA animate series in the UK. Um, I'd seen a few TED Talks interpreted and visualized in this way yeah. and um, thought, luckily enough, my next door neighbor I knew was a videographer. He operated cameras at Channel 7 and Channel 9. Um, he shoots Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, The Today Show, Cricket, yeah. Tennis, Footy. And I yeah. said, you know, I'll draw the thing. You shoot and edit it, and um, I think I redesigned his website for free in exchange for him making the video. It was a barter nice. deal. And, yeah, so we made this video that answered the question, what is UX design? And we stuck it on YouTube. And actually, just last week, it's clocked over 500,000 views. Nice. So that video has been very popular. Yeah. And um, UX Mastery as a business is still ticking along. My business partner is running with it. I've stepped away because uh, lots of people were asking for videos yeah. like that. And so that's... Um, how yeah. Sketch Videos was born. 
and and whenever I listen to you, like you you talk about sketch note videos, and you really pa uh, hear the passion in that. So well, when that yeah that right. that took then off, and um, if we if we go from into in those sketch note videos, how how had that then started? Like what was the first client or like well uh, um, took off. I think, so the first client was, I was doing some freelance consulting at Australia Post. Yeah. And so our first client, first paid sketch video was for Australia Post. It was only for internal use. Someone there wanted their sales team to have a consistent message when they went out to offer a service that Post mm -hmm. offer. Mm -hmm. And so we made a video so that they could play that to the prospect before then having a conversation about um, them engaging Post in a sales um, capacity. But... Um, nothing happened for about three months after that video. It was fun, mm -hmm. and it was exciting to think that we could get paid to to draw on. I was getting paid to draw pictures, so that was a novelty. Yeah. Um, and then I was doing some consulting work down in Geelong at, at Deakin University, and on my lunch break, I got a phone call, and it was from a PR firm who wouldn't tell me who the client was, um, who found me based on an article I'd written about sketchnoting because I'd, I'd taken lots of sketchnotes in the meantime. This is a, maybe this is a parallel yeah. thread, but I, yeah. I took lots of sketchnotes at conferences I attended and I would stick them on Flickr sure. yeah. and started to get noticed and got invited yeah. to contribute to a book and that whole kind of visual facilitation stuff that I, I also um, offer through sketch videos, that kind of took off based on just putting sketchnotes on the internet. Nice. But anyway, um, this phone call... They said, you know, it's a very short turnaround. Uh, we can't tell you who the client is. It was all very hush-hush. It was a, a set day and it was in May. And I was thinking, because um, they're, they're calling from Canberra. I thought, who in Canberra around May is going to have uh, secretive information? And, of course, it was the federal budget yeah. video. So this yeah. was the PR firm representing the government at the time who wanted to make a, a sketch video about the budget. Yeah, nice. And so that was extraordinarily rewarding and challenging um, working remotely with uh, a big client with a high profile. Yeah. But when the video was published on the day of the budget, I got 20,000 views on YouTube in its first 24 hours. And there's my name on the final frame because political videos have the thing at the end that say, you know, written and authorized and spoken by blah, blah. All the and credits. Then, yeah. All the credits. And then separate to that, there was uh, illustrated by, and it had my name. And I think I got about seven phone calls the next day, the people who Googled me. <laughs> and um, that, that was really the, the kickstarting of the um, demand. Nice. Yeah, so it was, it was very fortuitous. And uh, I still get people inquiring about a video saying, I liked the budget video. It was, you know, four years ago now. Very cool. Nice. So then how the process of creating a video looks like. You said like you got a phone call. Mm. What happens after this phone call then until you publish it on YouTube? So our process has evolved a bit over the years from the very first one that we did. Um, there's, a, there's a visual device that we use quite often and we used it in that budget video where the camera zooms out at the end to reveal the fact that all the individual images combine in a mosaic to form a larger shape. Yeah. And for the budget video, that zooms out to form the map of Australia. And it's a nice effect because you can't really tell what it's going to be up close, but at the end, it, it brings unity to all the disconnected yeah. parts. Yeah. Um, so we used to do that by doing an authentic zoom out. We would have this enormous sheet of paper that was um, two and a half metres wide by one and a half metres tall. And, um, you know, I'd basically by hand painstakingly map out 
in very light pencil every image ahead of time. So maybe I'm jumping ahead a bit. Um, the first thing that we need to do when we're making a video is get the script yeah, and get that story sorted. And that's, I think that's actually how we differentiate ourselves these days because my copywriting team have worked for the ABC for years. They've got a lot of experience in telling stories and crafting a, a script that is going to hook people in and, and make them want to stick around and listen. We, we write that almost like we're writing for radio. So it's really like a good story. Where exactly. It's like a, some context and you get a challenge. and you Yeah, that's right. So Some action in the Yeah, I mean, or... so a lot of the videos that we get asked to make are, are quite technical or complex or dry information and we get asked to, to simplify it and make it fun. And so mm. um, putting a story around it, possibly having a, a few different characters and different voices, um, thinking about what what is going to resonate with the audience, what kind of message do we want to get them to identify with and what kind of action do we want them to take, what behaviour change are we looking to make. Mm -hmm. All of these factors go into writing that script and then we try really hard to get the client to not change the script and it's not always possible because mm -hmm. sometimes when they see the visuals later on they get new ideas and want to change stuff but um, really the most efficient way to make a video is to write that script and then lock in the words and not change them. And then you show them a design. And then we, then we give them a storyboard. So yeah. it looks like a comic book. Yeah. And it's um, one frame after the other showing which image is going to be on screen for, yeah. for that part of the script when it's voiced. And so they can step through the passage of time and look at the images one after the other. And uh, if they don't like stuff, they can draw on it and send it back and, and uh, make suggestions. Or if they, if they just, if it's off brand or whatever, we can give them alternative ideas and we, we back and forth. We're very collaborative. We're not. Yeah. We're not creating arts. We're not precious about our artwork being critiqued. Can you, you know? Which tools do you use for this like collaboration remote, which is probably often remote? Uh, so we just create that storyboard in InDesign, export it as a PDF, and yeah. then the, um, the client will use the sticky note feature in Adobe Reader to leave comments. That's, that seems to work fine. Um, sometimes they'll print it out and write on it and scan it and email it back, and that's fine too. Um, we manage all projects using... Um, Basecamp. It's mm. been huge for us. I've, I actually don't know how I've run the business without Basecamp before yeah. <laughs> we started using it. It, it works extraordinarily well. And um, yeah, I'm not getting paid to say that. I really um, feel like it's a crucial part of our tool set. Mm. Um, yeah. And 37 Signals write nice books. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so a lot of my students who come to a visual facilitation training, like the Bicablo visualization trainings, they ask me then like in on the second day or after they started drawing, it's like, how can I create my video? Yeah, right. Yeah. So it's obviously like a lot of pre-work in the scripting, but like when you when you now, let's say a person wants to visualize this holiday, I do like a video for um, for a couple who get married or whatever as a present. Right. So how would you like, what is the process that you would say, um, you should focus on that or maybe first, how do you do then? How do you shoot the video? Okay. So, um, so I, I talked about how we spend a lot of time getting the script right. And I talked about how we make a storyboard to show each image one after the other and possibly combine those images to zoom out to form some, um, larger shape or something. Uh, once the client has signed off on that storyboard, that's for me, that's the lion's share of the work that's done. Like all the hard work is those two tasks. Yeah. The shoot is very straightforward for us. Um, 
So we have our own studio, mm-hmm. and because my videographer works for the TV networks, he has access to studio quality um, broadcast equipment and and lights and a setup. So we actually um, we have a whiteboard on the wall, and we film the illustrator. The illustrator has to. Um, we have about three different size stools, yeah. so that the illustrator's um, neck is not strained too much, and they can work comfortably. But they also have to be really careful to keep their head out of shot. Yeah. So um, one of our illustrators has um, quite a bit of hair, and so it's, it's an occasional problem of getting gel and patting the, the hair down so it doesn't poke <laughs> up from the bottom of the screen. No, it's, no. Um, yeah, and so it takes about a day to, to shoot each frame one after the other. Sometimes it might be a, like a large um, canvas, and other times we might shoot them one at a time. And the reason that we've moved to shooting them one at a time and doing that pan to the next image digitally is because sometimes a client will want to change a and change an image, um, yeah. just like slide one in and and replace it with another one, and if we have to shoot the whole thing again, then it's going to cost um, a lot for them to reshoot everything. So if we di- can just sh- reshoot that one image, it's a more efficient way to work. Yeah. So and then we combine the images in Photoshop and do and fake the zoom out. So it's like really this is like if I got it right, you pencil the the drawing in. And then you just trace the line with the marker again? Or so, there's a, so there's a few different ways. So, so the, the UX video that I made, that was actually just done with me having a small reference and um, winging it. I didn't have any guides at all. Mm. Just, I had a few key um, dots that I positioned to know roughly where the image shape should go. Mm-hmm. But I couldn't do that for a client because I can't guarantee that the image is going to look close enough to the one that they signed off on. Yeah. So then we started experimenting with using um, pencil guides and working on phone call. And that worked well for a while. Um, the, the problem we experienced with that was apart from the fact that putting those guides on took a lot of time, also um, pushing down on um, phone call with pencil sometimes left in a little... Yeah, life, um, life. In, Imprint, yes, and then when the light shines on, the shadow catches, and you can see those guides. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to to key that stuff out. So, so the next thing we tried was um, so we tried pa- paper as well, but it's really hard to get paper perfectly flat, mm-hmm. which is why we use phone call. And then these days, um, I'm revealing the secrets here. Mm-hmm. Uh, we actually uh, print out each frame, and we use um, repositioning adhesive glue that we spray on. We put a sheet of paper over the top of the frame mm-hmm. and then because um, we've printed the images at maybe 40% opacity mm-hmm. and it's just enough that the illustrator can see the guides through the sheet of paper but the camera doesn't pick it up. So that means like... So they're basically tracing by seeing the image under the sheet of paper. Oh yeah, so you have like the, the trace on the foam corp or... So we don't, on, we don't use wall. phone anymore. We just okay. use a, so we just use um it's usually an A three sheet with an A two sheet of paper over the top. Yeah, and you just and can basically see it. the paper behind the paper. You yeah, really but the record. camera can't see it. Yeah, nice. And then there's no um, imprint shadow problems. So for me, um, one thing I, I learned when I like I have a couple of videos where I play, explain Picablo as the as the drawing technique. Mm. Um, it was light is everything. And it's like when when someone like now goes home and wants to shoot a video or yeah. say, what is this like three tips you would give and say make sure you do that so there's a few different options for people that want to make their own um, obviously the process I've described which requires a professional studio and yeah. lighting and everything is not going to be feasible for um, someone who just wants to, to do do a DIY, DIY job um, 
want us to use technology, there are some tools out there like um, Sparkle TrueScribe, uh, VideoScribe, I think it's called. Mm -hmm. um, and so that simulates a hand bouncing around on the screen. So I think you can import uh, SVG files, vector files, and then um, it has a photograph of a hand. And I think you can even put in a photograph of your own hand holding a pen uh -huh. and it will move the pen around and simulate that image coming to life. Um, we don't we don't use a tool like that because I, I feel like um, the the authentic um, actual footage of an illustrated drawing mm -hmm. uh, looks more like a performance piece and looks more professional. So that's yeah. um, that's the market that, that we serve. But if if someone's happy enough with um, the automated version, then that tool is a good option. It's a pretty affordable tool. Which, um, which app was it? It's called Sparkle Video Scribe. Sparkle's video scribe. I think I think there's a company called TrueScribe that also have started to make one. Yeah, what um, I've seen was a video, for example, um, explaining Agile uh, by like Henry Knieberg from Spotify or something. I'm not sure exactly, right. but it looked like the pencil flies over. It's not actually touching. It's like, and then they draw definitely a printed letter with a brush, which is not possible. So it looks really like. Fake. Yeah, it looks fake. The, the, the software, the, the, the content is awesome, yeah. by the way, but the um, it's not it doesn't look real. It looks it looks fake because it is fake. It's yeah. a simulated. Yeah. Um, yeah. But and so for me, uh, for a professional video, you lose some of the magic. So mm -hmm. for me, the magic in these videos is the fact that um, you get this suspense built in because people always love seeing someone draw. Mm -hmm. They love yes. the magic of thinking, what is it going to be? What's he going to do next? Um, what is coming that that suspense is yes. is part of the appeal for the video yes. and and yeah that gets lost a bit when it's um, simulated with a tool absolutely um so the other thing that comes to mind for people that want to make their own sketch videos is uh there's a great tool on the ipad pro called procreate procreate uh -huh. and uh, it's it's just an illustration tool a sketching tool but it actually records all of the sketches that you create and you can play it back and export it as an HD video. So you don't get the hand on screen, yeah. but you do get the images appearing in the order that you created them. So if you spend time sketching on the screen, you, I, I love the iPad Pro, I think it's an amazing sketching tool. It's about as close as I've experienced to pen and paper. Yep. Um, but you get the added benefit with that app is that it, it records everything in the order that you sketched it and then you can spit that out as a video. So that's another option too if for people that happen to have an iPad and um, aren't that bothered by the hand not being on screen, mm -hmm. that's another option that could be good. Yeah. What does, like after you after you shot the um, the, the, the frames, yeah. what does then the, the post-production looks like? Like what is this after that when you work with a professional client, let's yeah. say Australia Post or the government? Or... Yeah. So um, post-production includes um, our videographer editing the footage to match a voiceover. Uh, sorry, editing our footage to match a voiceover that we've had recorded. So I think the effectiveness of a video really comes down to how well that image um, matches the voiceover. Yeah. So key phrases, key words um, need to punch with key moments in the illustration for it to really work, especially if there are words on screen. You want to have those words sync with the moment that the words are voiced. Yeah. Um, we add a bunch of sound effects and a background music track as well, mm -hmm. and the sound effects can really give it a lift and make that story come alive. Um, 
Yeah, so really I leave all that up to my videographer because he's such an editing whiz. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, it's ad adding another dimension with the voiceover, the music, the sound effects. And you then, of course, have to play this faster, right? Because the illustrator, like you, when you draw it, That's you're right. very slow and carefully make like exactly leading, like basically setting each line. And then you play it eight eight times the speed or four times or it's, how, it's, I, I, sometimes it's up to fifty times depending wow, on yeah. how much detail is in the illustration. Yeah, yeah, and in fact, there are some videos we've made that have had that much detail that the video editing software can't handle that amount of speed up, and they've had to export a sped up version so that they can import it and speed it up again. Yes. Um, yeah. So it's exactly it's, but it's really just it's sped up footage. And then we do have an After Effects team who can take footage. Um, for example, say if the illustrator drew a butterfly, then they can take the butterfly and they can have it move around and fly off the screen. And, and so I guess we're starting to mess with the format a bit so that it's not just sped up footage, but it's actually you know combining the magic of watching someone draw with all of the. Um, power that comes with having full control over manipulating stuff on the screen, making them move around, fly, change color, rotate, whatever. Yeah. So you can make the the pencil drawing then move around and just exactly. fly which, away. Which, nice. Which, yeah, we're, we're kind of drifting into more traditional animation there. So yeah. um, I guess the, you know, the sketch video style is what we've become famous for, but we are starting to move into um, messing with the format and mm -hmm. doing other things as well other than just sketching. So bringing in stop motion and cardboard cutout stuff and, um, you know, whatever. Basically, when we're given a brief, we try and think, how can we make this fun and simple and exciting um, regardless of what we do? And mostly that will be sketching, but there will be other elements and ideas that come in that might be a good fit too. I put in a, um, a brief for making a Lego video the other day. Nice. So we'll, we'll see, um, see whether the client likes that idea or not. So yeah. you're going from the 2D into 3D. Yeah, and, and more traditional motion graphics and, yeah. and vector animations as well. Yeah, we've got some amazing people on the team that can do that stuff. So we, we, we're branching out and becoming more than just the guys that make the hand-drawn videos, mm -hmm. but uh, more of a communications um, agency, I suppose. Um, just once what comes to mind, it's like, is this more for internal use, like your clients, or is this mostly public? What's the, what are, how, how does the market right now look like? What is the... What are the people using yours? I'd say for us, it's about 50-50. Yeah. I think that um, yeah, half the videos we make are corporates who have an internal message that they want to get across. So maybe it's a restructure. Maybe it's a new company vision that they want to communicate to the whole company. And they realize that making a PowerPoint slide deck is not going to cut it. Yeah. So um, they turn to us to give them um, their message something more interesting. Mm -hmm. And then the other 50% is... Um, yeah, stuff to be used online, whether it's product videos, service videos, companies describing what it is that they do, and also a lot of government campaigns. So we've done a lot of work for the Human Rights Commission um, in kind of the racism space, and like reporting racism and um, anti-racism messages. We've done some work for the Ombudsman's Office about um, explaining to foreign students about how to handle different situations when they come and study in Australia. You know, there's a whole whole range of um, ways that this can be applied. And I think especially for those government agencies, I believe that they've come to us because it's difficult for them to depict footage of specific ethnicities. Mm -hmm. um, one of the most interesting videos we made was for Northern Territory Health around mm -hmm. continents. Mm -hmm. So we really we had to draw pictures of Indigenous people and talk about a very sensitive topic. Mm -hmm. And so, um, 
walking that fine line between caricature and depicting those ethnicities accurately is a really tough challenge. And I feel like, you know, one of our illustrators in particular is really good at that detail and capturing um, different um, minorities and reflecting them in a way that's sensitive. So, yeah, there's a whole, there's a whole different um, range of areas that the videos are useful. One thought that I had was, like, I'm always trying to collect some jewels for the students and for people around who, like, well, got into visual thinking. What, like, you mentioned a couple of tools you should use, mm -hmm. like, um, for example, on an iPad or uh, maybe on your computer, After Effects, like something. What are, like, the, when you get started with it, are the tools you, you recommend, like, as a setup to start with? Obviously, a lot of light and a good camera. For in the video space, you yeah. mean? Yeah, yeah, I think, um, look, if people want to experiment with making videos on their own, um, the cameras on the iPhones and iPads these days actually is pretty good. Mm -hmm. So um, for a hundred bucks, you could buy a microphone boom arm that you attach to your desk that sits above your sketch pad and you could have that, you know, an iPod sitting on the top of the boom arm with a magnet or something and have that as a way of recording your illustrations. That could be a good way to start because then I say iPhone, I'm sure that Android cameras are even better. I'm just not across that space. Yeah. But yeah, setting up a home um, recording space using uh, a, a mobile phone on a microphone boom arm is and then a you pretty would inexpensive do it way. Top down onto a desk. Exactly, above your desk. And then you yeah. would set as much light as possible from exactly. the Exactly, so, so to, to do that, I've experimented with this. You need about five or six um, desk lamps. Mm -hmm. So if you position them around the sketch pad, so you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, just basically to get as even spread of light as possible and also to reduce the amount of shadow that your arm causes, yeah. that's um, that's going to get you the best result. Nice, great. So, um, yeah, the DIY sketch mm -hmm. video setup, that's um, that's what I've used in the past for, um, for making budget videos. So you don't, like, a starter doesn't need to buy a softbox or things like this directly? No, I reckon um, you can get a reasonable result with that kind of setup. Yeah. yeah. Like, when I when I did my, like, first videos where I explained Picabo, I was, like, looked at the footage afterwards, and I, it was, like, yellow because I used, like, a normal lamp. But what I then noticed was I just could fix that in the software. Mm. So Interesting. So it was in some ways possible, like you don't have to have this perfect setup. No, but definitely if you're going to go and buy some lamps and set up your own um, sketch video lab at home, make sure that all the, the lamps you buy are as white as possible. Yes. It's going to give you the yeah. best uh, white. Because that infinite white is part of the appeal, right? It feels like it's this canvas that stretches on forever. Oh, yeah. I like just a white canvas. I can yeah. look at it. It's awesome. Yeah. 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 Um, so where from here next? When you like, you just said about After Effects, animating, where does sketch videos go next year? Well, um, it's been an amazing 18 months for us. The business has, has kind of grown and the team has grown. For us, I feel like, you know, it's funny. When I started the business, I was I felt like I was doing two different unrelated activities. I was making the videos and I was doing graphic recording and graphic facilitation mm -hmm. for clients. But for a lot of people, those two activities are in the same bucket in their head. Mm -hmm. They see them as very related because they're sketching. Yeah. Even though for me, I feel like they're very different activities. Um, so on the side, the, the, 
graphic recording team has been growing and the graphic facilitators that we work with has been expanding. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm finding more and more ways to leverage one to sell the other and vice versa. So, for example, if I'm doing a graphic facilitation for a company at a strategy workshop mm-hmm. to help them flesh out their ideas and articulate what they want to do, one of the activities that they might want to do then is to make a video about how to tell their story. And, and there I am. I'm in the workshop. I've built the trust and rapport. I'm in a prime position to be able to say, I can help you with that. You have all the background already. Exactly. Just the perfect person. To so, so for me, I feel like um, continuing to, to work as a graphic facilitator and um, facilitate these conversations with people at the strategic level moves me higher up the food chain and puts me in a good position to be able to offer complementary services. And so that's what I'm going to continue to do. And and selfishly, that's the kind of work that I actually really love. I feel like I'm really good at helping people visualize their ideas in the moment and capture it for them so that they can make better decisions. Mm-hmm. And it just so happens that I can help them execute on some of those decisions at the same time. So just continue to um, continue to seek out work that is creative, that is rewarding, that feels purposeful. We've done, you know, like I said, I've worked with some incredible clients, especially in the government space, very rewarding work where you can see it's actually making a difference to people's lives. Um, If we can continue to do that and continue to grow, then I'll be very happy. Cool. Sounds great. Last but not least, um, how can you people in contact with you? Like what should they check out? Sure. I I am quite sporadic on Twitter. Maddie McGee is my um, Twitter handle, M-A-T-T-Y-M-C-G. But uh, for all things sketch videos related, they should just go to the website. There's a fairly comprehensive collection of information about how and why we do what we do. So that's at sketchvideos.com.au. Awesome. Matt, thank you very much. Uh, it was great to chat with you. Yeah. And, um, You're yeah, very welcome. to your future work. Thank awesome. you very much, Marcel. It's, um, it's a great honor to be invited to, to have a chat, and um, I hope that people find something of use in there. Definitely. Thank you very much. Cheers. Awesome. Cheers. Hey guys, quickly before we wrap up, if the podcast helped you and you learned something, then hop over on LinkedIn or Twitter or Facebook and share the link with your friends. And finally, the new Picablo training program has started. We have trainings lined up in Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane and Perth. If you are interested in those trainings, jump over on my website. It's marcelvanhoef.com. If you're in Europe and you would like to attend the training, then jump over on picablo.com. That is B-I-K-A-B-L-O.com. And for the first time, I'm very happy to announce that we will run a training um, in Singapore upcoming this first quarter of 2017 with our partner alllinedup.biz. This is alllinedup.biz. Check the website for that. <music>